Welcome to this episode of Tea with Triggy. It's great to have you here. This is a podcast where I catch up with friends and people that I find fascinating. I check that they're doing okay and ask for tips to help our stay at home more comfortable. This week's guest is the wonderfully witty, incredibly talented and much loved Dame Emma Thompson. Emma, hello. Hello, Twigs. How lovely you look in your book-lined arrangements. I know you've got books as well. I know we've got books behind us, yes. Yes, mine are just, you know, ones that you buy by the yard. There's no actual books behind them. (laughs) They're trick books. (laughs) Well, ours looks very neat because at the beginning of lockdown, Lee, who you know, my husband, the first two weeks... Because he's been saying, I'm going to sort the books out for about 10 years. <laughs> so there was nothing else to do. So he redid the bookshelf and um, we ended up with a lot going to charity, which was nice. Well, I think the charity shops had to close, didn't they? They just said, we can't take anyone because yeah. everybody did a sort of clear out. Everyone. <laughs> everyone cleared everything out. And my kitchen drawers oh, no, have never we... been so tidy. I know. I'm, I, I've become, I'm really a good cleaner, especially bathrooms. Yes. I'm, a, I'm very good. I get me rubber gloves on. I love it, actually. It's really um, it, it's very pleasing. It's very pleasing, a bathroom particularly. Mm-hmm. You know, when you've done... It is. Yeah, and how clatty they get. And so quickly. <laughs> I'm a tiny bit um, obsessed about bathrooms. And, you know, really scrubbing your loo so there's no... I know. No circle of horridness to greet you in the morning, (laughs) you know. Exactly. (laughs) Until you have little kids in the house who forget to flush. When when our grandkids come home and you get up in the morning, you think, oh, gosh. (laughs) Thank you for that. It's like a gift, isn't it? My granddaughter uh, FaceTimed me this morning. She's five. This is Carly's little girl, Jolie. And she was so excited because she'd learnt to blow a balloon up. So she had to ring me and show me on FaceTime. It was hysterical because <laughs> she hasn't been able to do it before. That's incredible. She must have the lungs of a of a <laughs> opera singer. I can't blow a balloon up. I pass out after three puffs. <laughs> Maybe mum and dad had, had blown it up a bit for her. No, but she did do it on camera. It was just, just made me laugh because you forget about all the things are so normal in our life when you first learn to do them. It's very exciting. I know, but I think as you get older as well, particularly into extreme old age, you start going back to, look, look, I've done a poo, I've done a poo. My grandmother <laughs> used to, it was, she was always so thrilled when she'd done a poo. And it's I, something to do with hysteric. old age and, and children. You know, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of connection. It's very, there it's, is actually, it's fascinating. Because right. I've been up in Scotland with mum for eight months. Because she's got, you know, mum's 88, she's got Parkinson's. She's doing really brilliantly. I mean, she's so uncomplaining and delightful. Um, um, But, yeah, there's definitely a sense of pride in that area. (laughs) I'm not going to go further into that. I think that's... I think we should draw a veil. (laughs) Let me ask you, have you got a cup of tea? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, 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 I drink tea... Sort of on the dot of four every day. Just one cup, one cup of tea a day and one cup of coffee a day. That's it. Mm. You don't have tea in the morning, you're a coffee drinker. I have one coffee in the morning, that's it, yeah. I just, I used to drink a huge kind of massive pot of tea in the morning, but I can't take it now, you know. I'm I'm all right with I I'm not a coffee drinker. It gives me heart palpitations. Yeah, I don't I don't and and indigestion actually coffee. You've got to be really like careful that. with coffee. You have yeah. to be careful with Maybe. the caffeines as you get older. Anyway, I think. Yeah, well, I'm on lemon and ginger. In the, I I do have my builders in the morning. I have to say that wakes me up with a bit yeah. of milk and honey in. And, yeah, you know, good old strong Yorkshire tea. Yeah, and then I afternoons I'm on me herbals. Oh, well, that's very, yeah, that's very good. <laughs> so you, you said you've been in Scotland. Yes. Now, your mum was from Scotland, right? Yes, yeah, so that's why we yeah. we, go, we spend so much time up there because all her family, 
were there until they one by one dropped off the twig, you know. But um, yeah. my grandparents were there, so we just spend spent so much time up there. And Gaia's got a life up there in the same way that I have, you know. She's oh, my old my oldest friend is someone I met when I was when I was nine. So I'm oh. I've known him for fifty. 51 years does that make what does that come to yes six, 51 I've known for half a century it's very That's odd amazing. when you still feel vaguely normal you know like you're normally walking about and doing your shopping and everything you're not in a wheelchair you're not actually properly old and elderly but you can still say that you've known someone for for 50 years 50 years and you I go know. half a century good heavens and then you go well if that's half a century 250 years ago, which you think of as being a long time ago, actually isn't that long. It can't have been that different 250 years ago or 150 years ago. We're so used to thinking of the past as miles and miles away, but I don't think it is now. Well, I certainly think in, in certain little villages and, you know, seaside places, I think, you know, I think that's why we often like going to those places because when I go to those sort of places it reminds me of when i was a little girl in the 50s that's right the seaside towns are still a little bit like that they haven't really changed that a lot of them have kind of gone down a bit since package holidays abroad yeah but there's something comforting and nice about it because Mm. you know although it's freezing sitting on the beach (laughs) yes there's something that is reminds me of my childhood which was happy, I'm happy to say. Yes. And we always went for one week a year to a holiday camp. Yes. Usually like I know we South always Wales. went we to Scotland. It must be the Scotland. same as Scotland. We yeah. never went, well, we didn't have the money to go abroad. And anyway, when we were young, um, you and I, that 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 wasn't really done, was it, actually? Well, yeah, yeah I'm a little bit older. I'm 10 years older than you. So I grew up in the 50s. You must have I grew grown up in the, up 60s. In the 60s. I was born in 59, yeah. yes. And I think package holidays really kicked off mid 60s yeah probably like that well thomas cook and all that stuff yes it must have been because i first flew to america in 1967 not that that was a package holiday that was work yeah but but people were you know people you know from my sort of family didn't fly nobody nobody flew nobody flew i'm not sure my grandparents any of them ever went on a plane it just wasn't the thing and you know scotland was 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 where we went. We, you know, as soon as the school holidays. Where about Scotland? Oh, was it Argyle. up in It's like oh, the God, gateway okay. to the Highlands. So it's west coast, yes. and it's in this little sort of um, area of lochs and inlets. It's a bit, you know, oh. it's a bit Norwegian actually. It's, but it's also it's where the forestry is. So that's that was the that is the the industry there is is trees, spruce. So, oh, okay. But my uncle had a tea room. He ran a, my lovely, now dead but gay uncle had this fantastic tea room called the Primrose Tea Rooms, and we used to get to take oh. little trays of, of scones with butter and jam out to the old ladies who all came on bus tours with their wee bonnets on, you know, and a nice oh. wee coat, and they'd sit in the thing, and they'd have, you know, they'd have their their scones and their cream and their tea and all the cakes that my uncle used to make that Gaia oh. now makes. And it was very, um, very beautiful because it was seaside too, but it was a loch. Oh, you've, uh, yeah. Oh, the loch, mm. of course. Yeah, I, I, I know Scotland a little bit because, you know, Lee, who, my yeah. husband, who you know, you know, he's a lot, he's a Lawson. So he's, of course he his is. dad was a Scot from, yes. I think, the kind of borderlands. Oh, yeah, Dumfries and Galloway sort of place. Yeah, all around there. I mean, he never lived there because his dad came. His dad was a, a song and dance man. Really? You know, and he he, he was with, um, he had a partner, and they used to do exotic dancing. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which was sand dancing and tap dancing. Oh, how f- and what things heaven. Like that. Yeah. But all of those things take us back. So Lee's half Scottish as well. Huh. yeah. But we, we, I, I have been up there, but I don't know it well. I've never been to the Highlands, which is on my, my yeah, bucket, your bucket list. list yes, but you have to go in the summer, don't you? Because I would think in the winter it's pretty. I would suggest spring, spring or autumn, because oh, some really? of the midge okay. are out, and they will have you. Oh, oh yeah. I saw, actually, there was a program on telly about somewhere up in the Highlands, and they were covered in 
these, mm. you know, flying midges, and they were obviously being bitten to death. Yes, it's really something, the Scottish midge. I sometimes think it saves us from mass tourism, though, which is good, you know, because some places in our beautiful island can get really uh-huh. overrun, you know. Oh, the no. lakes are quite yeah. difficult in summertime because it's just, there's too many people. Yeah. Well, it's like Cornwall has that, doesn't it? And, yeah. And the, and the, lake, the lake district. And we saw it when they suddenly allowed people to go away this summer. You know, it just got too crowded. Yes, because nobody was going abroad. They all went, to, they all went oh, let's go to Cornwall. <laughs> Yes. Not a good idea. No. Not a good idea. But now your lovely dad, who I know, you know, you you were very close, and he 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 did the magic roundabout, didn't he? Yes, he did. He, oh he, my goodness! He was working for the BBC doing Play School, which was a sort of program for kids, and and they said, oh, Eric, would you be interested in in these little cartoons that we've been sent? They they weren't cartoons; they were animations, but yeah. old school animation, so little sort of stop start animation. Made by a Frenchman called Serge Dano. And Dad said, oh, I'll have a look. So he had a little machine um, in actually a house up the street here. I'm odd because I've lived in the same street for all my life. I've lived for 61 years in the same street. (laughs) So I live in number 30 of this street. And when I was little growing up, I lived in number 31. I've only moved one house down. (laughs) Anyway, and it's slightly smaller. I'm a bit resentful. Anyway, um, so Dad had this funny little reel-to-reel thing and he would watch these films and he just, he was paid 15 quid for each one, I remember, because everyone thought he'd got rich off it, but of course the BBC held on to the copyright and didn't. So oh, he, that, that's what happened. But he, and he watched these little films and then he invented all these characters, Dougal and Brian the Snail and Zebedee oh, the Strange. Brian the Snail was my favourite. He I was mean, always my favourite. Everyone knows. I mean, I... I mean, what was it between the 60s and 70s? It was. I think it started something like 63 or 4 and then went on for a bit. Yeah, so I didn't watch them as a child, but they became legendary even to grown-ups. Well, adults loved them. They once moved. They used to be on before the news. No, no, I'm sorry, I've got that wrong. They were on after the news and then they moved it to before the news and then they got so many complaints from all these businessmen um, in the days when people used to go to the office coming back and saying, I've, I've, I've now find that I have come in too late to see the magic roundabout. Could you please put it back to its earlier slot? Thank you so much. Concerned of Penge. So Dad wrote this little thing for kids and what was so wonderful about it was he... He used. He didn't write for children. He just said children were people who hadn't lived as long as we have. And he he really objected to to making language different for children. So he'd get the get these letters of complaint from people like a woman who said, "My my uh, no, it was a little boy who wrote to him and said, I got my mum hit me because I called my sister a mollusk." And she said, don't be rude. And I, so Dad had to write back and say, that's not rude. Mollusk is not rude. You might have said it in a rude way, but it is not a rude word. That's so funny. That is absolutely hysterical. And he used, he used phrases like hoist with your own petard, you know, in this thing for children. And one woman wrote to him and said, I can't understand why you're using these long and difficult words. Children simply won't be able to... And it's just, it's it's mean and cruel. So he wrote back, he'd gone out to the Oxford English Dictionary and found all the longest words he could find and used them all in this letter. So it was completely <laughs> incomprehensible. He was very funny. Yeah, he must have been amazing. Was it through him you think you got into the, you know, kind of the acting or got the acting bug? Well, him and mum, because mum, mum also, they met at drama school. You know. Oh, did they? Yeah, I didn't they know they that. get they met at drama school, and when they got married, they were in Midsummer Night's Dream, and she was playing Titania, and he was playing Puck. Mm. So they did Aww. two shows, got married on the Sunday, had Sunday afternoon for their honeymoon, and were back in the theatre on Monday. How br- oh, what a lovely what a lovely show to meet on. Oh yeah, Aww. no, they they met Titania. they'd met a while before at school at the Bristol Old Vic School Theatre School. Oh. So they knew each other for, you know, three or four years before they plumped for one another, as so it were. So you were born in a trunk? 
I was basically born in a trunk, yeah. Because mum was, and I saw mum doing As You Like It at the Regent's Park Theatre, I remember, the outdoor theatre. And and it was so exciting because you'd go back and she'd be wearing this felt, felt costumes that smelt a lot of dust and, 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 and sort of green things, you know. And then she'd be covered in thick makeup because, of course, in those days there wasn't the lights really to light people up. I remember asking her, I must have been about seven, I said, what's it called, the play? And she said, As You Like It. And I said, no, really, what's it called? She said, it's called As You Like It. <laughs> and I got quite cross and said, no, 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 don't, I don't want to name the play. I want you to tell me what it's called. And she said, the name of the play is As You Like It or What You Will. Shakespeare has said, call it what you like. And um, <laughs> I, I was amazed and, and sort of entranced by that, I think. Yeah. So you got the bug very young. And and your lovely sister Sophie too. And Soph, Soph got the bug younger than me and she was younger than me. So she started acting. I remember she did a school, a school play and you could already tell that she was a bit of a genius. And Dad Dad went to see it and just said, said, oh, well, that's it. And he was a great support. And she left school when she was 16 and went straight into the profession. But then later went on to study at Bristol Old Vic. She went to their school. But Soph's just extraordinary. And he always knew that. I, I didn't really want to act. I wanted to be a comedian, finally. That doesn't surprise me at all, because you are, you are hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> you really make me laugh, anyway. <laughs> Did you want to be a stand-up? Mm, yeah, sort of. Oh like God. I wanted to be... Not, no, we're not quite stand-up like we understand it, not... Sort of Lily Tomlin, Joyce Grenfell area of oh, okay. life, where you where you do do a bit of stand up, but it's mostly character work. But didn't you do that sort of? Because you went to Cambridge, right? Yes. To what? Do English was it? To read English, yeah, yeah. And then you joined the, what, Footlights. the Footlights, right? Yeah, which is the famous um, stand up. Theatrical... Well, it's actually it's a sketch. It's a review. Um, Gosh, I think they must have started in the early part of the 20th century or no, probably much earlier, probably 19th century, where it was just a collection of people coming on and doing a sketch, then a single actor coming on and doing a monologue, then a song and then a bit of a dance and very common for years and years in the theatre. And that's what Footlights did. Um, And so actually it was the most fantastic training because... We used to do a review in the Easter holidays at the Little Arts Theatre in Cambridge and then we mm. would do the review, we would tour it in the summer and then ending up at the Edinburgh Festival. So it was a sort of paid gig and you had yeah. to, you were playing in actual theatres in front of a paying audience. So it was a fantastic training. Fantastic. So did you guys write write the stuff as well? Yeah. It wasn't um, one person writing it and you all mucked in? No. Well, everyone mucked in. I was very diffident about writing at that time, so uh, I, I, I just didn't think I was able. And now it's not surprising because my compatriots were, amongst others, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, mm-hmm. who were so brilliant at it. And so I was very um, uh, nervous to try. Although we did then afterwards, me and Sandy Toxford did the first all-female review at Cambridge. Oh, really? Woman's Hour, yeah, yeah, and we wrote a lot of that. So when you left Cambridge, did you just fall fall? Did you go out and get an agent, or did somebody see you in you know the reviews, or or did you? Um, well, well, I did a lot of odd things. I went, I went first of all, um, and did a a weird kind of, um, well, mime course, I suppose, at the Théâtre. Lecoq, de Lecoq, who's a sort of extraordinary mime artist, and um, and I I was just very interested in clowning, so I went and did a clown course. Um, actually, it was buffoon buffon course. Um, in in Paris, can you imagine? I mean, you know, the wine, the sex. Uh, uh, it's just <laughs> it was great, and plus the course was good. The course was good, but really mostly the other things were fantastic, and um. Um, and then I, I wrote my own show and I did that at the Edinburgh Festival. So I did things like that first and then I did Me and My Girl in 1984 wow. to five. Yeah, the, the year of the miners' strike. So it was 84, it was you and Robert Lindsay, right? 
Yes, yes, that's right. It's a brilliant show, absolutely brilliant. Because when you were doing that, I was doing my one and only on Broadway. Oh my goodness! Because they they asked me because I think you turned you didn't want to or you couldn't. No, 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 no. I was only to I, nobody knew who I was. Oh really? Because they asked me to do it on Broadway, but I couldn't because it overlapped with the show I was doing, which was oh. a shame, really, because I it would have been lovely. We'd have been doing the same part then. <laughs> we would have done. It's You'd have been absolutely show. brilliant as Sally. But I couldn't because I was doing the other one. But um, but that was really the show that kind of brought you big recognition, wasn't it? No, the theatre doesn't really get you. Get ah. you. I mean, it's not like that really. I I think um, I think that after that I did Tutti Fruity, the Scottish thing with Robbie Coltrane, and oh, I did yeah. the Fortunes of War with Ken. Fortunes of War, Anna. yeah, that was huge, wasn't it? And it was that those two things. I think they were quite. You know, I got a BAFTA for for those two performances, and um, and that I think was the moment when my very good agent was asked by a lot of people to. He said, you know, you, you've got to put her in film. You've got to put her in film. And he said to me, no, you you were offered a television series before these two series of your own to write. You've got to do that. That's what you've got to do because that's your stuff. It's your voice. So so write it. Don't go and do other people's stuff. And that's that's the measure of a yeah. very good agent because, you know, he would have made much more money off me selling me to film people. But he just said, no, you've got to write. You've got to do your the thing that you always wanted to do. So I sat down and wrote a television series. And did you star in it as well? Yes, with with loads of folk who, well, Imelda Staunton was my absolute sort of co-star, really. A lot of the stuff, it was just mm-hmm. two women. But loads of people were in it, including Ken, actually. Oh, that's amazing. So that was the kind of, because obviously we all know you got the Oscar for Sense and Sensibility. You wrote that, didn't Sense and Sensibility. So was that the kind of lead-in to doing that sort of writing, to do adaptations? Yes, it was. It was absolutely the basis. And it was because of that show that the producer of Sense and Sensibility asked me to adapt it. Yeah, totally. And that's what led to screenwriting. Yeah. Although the one you're talking about before, the one you wrote, that was that was an original, was it? That wasn't an adaptation. Yes, that that the, the, the television series was a sketch show. Yeah. And is it harder yeah. to adapt something than doing something that's completely new? Um, it's different. Yes, it's different. It took me five years to get Sense and Sensibility right. I wrote so many drafts wow. of that. Um, but actually, screenplays do take a long, long, long time. And I mean, originals and, you know, and adaptations, it's it's sort of the same, really. Uh, it's funny writing. I love writing, but I, it's very lonely and it's quite hard graft. You know, you're just on your own with your pen and paper because I don't write on computer. Yeah. Um, so actually, in a way, acting's a bit of a reward after that because you get to play around with people and see your mates and, you know, have fun. Yeah, but you, you obviously, you were in Sense and Sensibility and that's where you met Greg, isn't it? Yeah. Your lovely husband. My lovely hubby. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because I loved him so much, you worked with Mike Nichols and in Angels in America. Yeah. Oh, yes. Wasn't he the most amazing man? Yeah, he was. he was sort of a dad, really, to me, because my father died very young. He was... He just turned 53 when he died and it was very oh, tough. God. So I met Mike when I was about 30, 31 or something. And so he was he's, was part of my life for a long, long time because we did, we did Primary Colours first, which we oh, shot in, ni- right. in 97. So, yeah, I was... So is that where you met him? Um, no, I met him in about 94, something like that. So I was about okay. I was about thirty three or so when I met him thirty four, and um, and so he he was just extraordinary to me. We actually we did a sort of early reading of Remains of the Day together, um, and he was in something called The Designated Mourner by Wally Shawn at the National, and that's when mm-hmm. I first had lunch with him and thought, 
I, I love this person so much. He's so brilliant and so humane and so wise and so clever. And so we became um, incredibly close friends. He gave me away at my wedding to Greg, actually. He, w- Aww, he took my dad's place. I never place. knew that. That's lovely. Yeah. Oh, that's so gorgeous. Oh, you must miss him. I, do, I mean, I miss him we still. were friends. Yeah. I, did, I wasn't as close to him as you, but because um, he came in, he rescued our sh- the show that I was doing in America oh, really? on Broadway. Uh-huh. Yeah. Be- we well, it was I. I was with Tommy Tune, who yes. was like the star of it with me, and and then Tommy fell out with the director, so he called on Mike, who was a great friend, and said, "Will you come in and help?" <laughs> Did he sort and it? So he, although he didn't take, oh yeah, of course, him and Peter Stone, who yeah. was this wonderful writer, who was also long gone, but um, I absolutely adored him. Uh-uh. But you know, I, I I grew up on all the Nichols and May yeah. um, comedy sketches, which are absolutely brilliant. Oh, I mean, you just listen to them now and realise that they and, and Elaine, who I also utterly adore wrote the thing we did together, Primary Colours, and we just used to sit around and, and laugh. Like I know. She is one of the funniest oh, people on the planet. She's so funny. <laughs> and and when Mike died, of course, we all had to get in a room together and say things, and and Elaine was just hilarious. She was just hilarious. Aww. But, yeah, that, that um, that's the toughest death since my dad's, actually. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no. But was it a wonderful experience doing Angels in America? Because it was such an amazing piece. Oh, it work, was extraordinary it? for oh, all of us. Not only that writing, but, you know, with working with Meryl and, and, and Al Pacino in, in places like Rome, you know, I, I, you just couldn't really believe that it, you were experiencing this incredible um, sort of creative group. Um, and mm. and the conversations that we'd have were was so thrilling and yeah it, we we felt very fortunate and Greg came over and Diane actually Diane never did come I don't think to Rome but we was we saw a lot of her and yeah New York's yeah, she's not a nice the same. Lady. yeah she's amazing <clears throat> Diane amazing mm. Oh, that's lovely and um, the other thing I love you've done which I'm sure everyone does, is Howard's End. Oh, yeah. I just wonder what it was like working with Merchant Ivory because I, I was such a fan of all their work. I mean... Oh, they, the were they, they were remarkable. They were remarkable. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, most they eccentric. Don't, they don't make films like that anymore. They don't. Well, they do try, but they're not like that, are they? <laughs> nah, no, no. Um, there's something so deeply kind of rooted in... I don't know, some kind of wise... I mean, they're very, they were very odd, in a way. And Ismail was incredible. He'd learnt how to produce in India as a little lad mm-hmm. running around this market. Just to, He used to pay people in cash when he worked in India. <laughs> He'd have a big plastic bag full of cash. And that was the whole thing. You know, there was always... It was always very hand-to-mouth with Merchant Ivory, so... You know, Tommy on the crew ran the Sparks would say to me, have you been paid this weekend? And I'd say, yes, I have. And he'd go, well, that's good news, because that meant that the crew were probably going to get paid because you had to pay your actors first. And everybody was so loyal to them because Jim Ivory was was just sort of completely visionary, really. And he just saw things in such a particular way. Yeah, yeah, they all have a, a stamp on them that's so yeah, classy it's particular. and beautiful. And Tony Hopkins, of course, that was the first time I worked with Tony, and 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 it oh, was, was it? yeah, it was such a, it was such a joy because I, again, I suppose, of all the actors I've worked with, apart from Dustin, whom I adore as well, but um, Tony's just been such an important partner, you know. Mm-hmm. Towards end at first, and then remains of the day. I, I think remains of the day is probably the best thing I've ever seen him do. It's just so extraordinary. But you were pretty extraordinary in that, and in you got the Oscar for Howard's End. Didn't I you? did, yes, I did. Ooh, that was the thrill. What was it like going to get? Was it? Was it? Scared? I've presented at the Oscars twice, and that's pretty hysterical because you're kind of locked up backstage and they can't get out. But I can't imagine what it must be like. 
getting is it scary when you have to go up and get it yeah really scary and sort of surreal <laughs> absolutely surreal because don't forget you know the oscars weren't as big a thing in the uk when i got that oscar i was about 32 mm -hmm. i think or 31 32 something like that i'd never even thought about oscars you know they were just not in my you, you never ever thought ooh i wonder if i'll ever win an oscar that thought had never crossed my mind they were just so far away and so beyond. And you didn't, I mean, it didn't occur to me to want to win one, if you see what I mean. I'm not sure about um, awards at all, actually. But anyway, it's all right for me to say. I've experienced it. But, <laughs> but now you've got hundreds on your shelf. <laughs> but the thing is, I just remember that I remember the detail of, of it. my mum wore a, a sort of long, because I took her to both the ceremonies, I, I'm, she was, I bet she loved it. She loved it. Brilliant. And she wore a long train yeah. to her dress and, and it, people kept treading on it. And every time she turned around, <laughs> somebody unbelievably famous had trod on it. You know, she had Placido <laughs> Domingo. She had Al Pacino. She had John Travolta. She had Richard Gere, who clearly fancied her, can I just say. And um, it was just... It was a, it, and then I went backstage and there was a security guard and I said, oh, God, my feet are killing me. Could you hold this for a minute? And it was, as though I, it was as though I'd handed him the Ark of the Covenant. He held this thing like, and, and then I took it home and I had to wrap it in a pair of socks to take it in my hand luggage. And it went through the x-ray machine. And did it, did it beep? Yeah, of course, the customs people said, <laughs> well, you've got to open your bag, ma'am. And I opened it and took out the Oscar. And again, it was like one of those Steven Spielberg moments. They all handed it round the airport. And then they told the captain and, and the captain came down to me in the plane, to me and mum, and said, um, I'm so sorry, but do you think we could borrow your Oscar for a minute? I said, yeah, 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 no, take it. Honestly, it's fine. And they, they just all took, went, went away, got a camera out because it was before the days of smartphones oh, and took pictures so of themselves with this, with this little statue. But I had no idea that until so that happened funny. how iconic it, it, it was. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Well, I, I can just remember from presenting it, though, to Oscar thing. What was funny for me is that because they hold you backstage because yes. we weren't allowed to go out anywhere. Well, you lot yeah. were sitting. Any, no. And, um, and they've, got like a, they've got different green rooms. But you walk into a green room and there's like these amazingly famous people yeah. there. Everywhere you look, yeah. it's really bizarre. It is really bizarre. It's like being it inside so a weird. tropical fish tank, isn't it? You just go, yeah. what? And I remember the, the first time I had to, I, I, it was, do you remember Peter Falk who did Columbo? Yes. And he only had one eye. He had a glass eye. Yes. He was so lovely. And... I had a long dress and high heels, and I'm not very good in heels. I never have been. I don't wear them anymore. But And they gave us a staircase, a really tall staircase to walk down. Oh, no. And I said to Peter, my God, I've got to hold on to you because I'm terrible in these shoes. Because most people were walking on from the wings, but we got a bloody staircase. So he said, yeah, he said, and I went to hold his arm and he said, no, no, take the other side, he said, because I, I, that side I, I can't see. It's a glass eye, and, and if you fall, I won't see you go. <laughs> I won't be able to catch you, so I had to go on the other side of and him. That's and I clung on to him for dear life. It was absolutely mad. Because it's scary, because they tell you there's how many million people watching before you go on, and you think, oh, my God, don't tell me that. <laughs> I had to so present an award at the globes um a couple of years ago and i had these high heels on and i thought i literally am not i cannot i cannot be in these things anymore i'm gonna i can't walk and i can't speak the pain is so terrible <laughs> so i said backstage i was in the you know in the the control room i said i'm sorry i'm gonna have to do this in bare feet and i took the shoes on <laughs> with a martini and just threw them i just threw them Brilliant. away um that's but, brilliant. Because, you know, it's really hard and scary. It is. Well, high heels are scary. Any, I, I've never been a high heel. I can't heel walk in them. Walk. I literally I can't, can't walk in them. I know. And you can't dance in them, definitely. No, of course not. <laughs> Although I did know a photographer who used to love dancing and she loved dancing in high boots and she used to anaesthetise her feet literally <laughs> with an injection before she went dancing. 
I said, oh are you God. mad? She said, I like dancing. I like dancing in these boots. It hurts too much. So I put, I put, I put an anaesthetic into my feet. That and is thought, insane. Okay, well, that's interesting. That is absolutely insane. <laughs> oh, my God. I've never, that is, I've that's heard mad, of putting stuff it? in your face, but yes. not. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Oh my God! What would it be? She could have completely fallen over. Yeah, if you can't feel your feet, how can you stand? (laughs) (laughs) So, Twigs, Twigs, when you were there and when you were young and doing all that malarkey, Uh um, who was the person, famous person that you met that you were most kind of astonished by meeting? Yeah. Uh, probably. Well, very, very. When I first went to America uh, in 1967, and I was like this kid who came over from mm. the states, uh, from England, and American Vogue took me over there, Diana Freeland, and uh, so it became a kind of news story. Mm. And then Bert Stern, who was this very famous photographer, was doing a documentary on me. And um, I just thought they'd all gone a bit mad. It was it was it was crazy. Anyway, we flew to LA, and he mm. was he came with the camera and everything. And Sonny and Cher gave me a party <gasps> on, on oh, their that's lawn. That's really cool. <laughs> and that's literally the coolest thing I've ever ever heard. Yeah. Wow! Um, I've still we I still these pictures pop up on you know Instagram and things every now and again. And Cher had a little mini yellow kind of dressed with puff sleeves with that beautiful long dark hair. Yeah. And uh, it was just surreal. It was surreal. So yeah. that was pretty awe-inspiring. You know, I was 17 years old. I was from Neesden. It was like, yeah. and there's Sonny and Cher giving me a party. And no, then... That is amazing. Th- there was this room of a motorbike and, you know, Steve McQueen turned up on the lawn and it was it was, it was was mad. It was mad. It was a bit silly, but... Um, Did he try to kiss you? He did ask me to dance, and I said no. I was what? I was really shy. Yes, yes. You know, I was this funny. You know, I was seventeen. No, I can't and imagine that, that. What had happened to me had only happened a year before in England. Yes. So I was still very insecure, and you know, I was this funny little skinny kid. So suddenly to have all this attention—it's astonishing you've survived it. Actually, seriously, it's astonishing because when I think of the very young people who've had that kind of attention you know, uh, in, uh, in the ensuing years and, and indeed now, some of them have not done well with it. It's very hard. And I sometimes wonder how you and and I think I think Paul McCartney's sort of mm. similar. I only met Ringo Starr like, very, very recently, but they all seem to have managed to, and you, to remain sternly and firmly themselves. Well, vague. What the, I mean, I went through kind of the the kind of press stuff, but they had mm. the added thing of all these girlfriend yes. fans wanted. To, I mean, there there were, you know, I've talked to Paul about it. There were ye- years where they were like locked up in hotel rooms. They couldn't go anywhere. I didn't have that no. problem because I didn't have those. I had fans who wrote to me and said, "Oh, can I have a picture?" But because it was girls who loved these mm. boys. They literally were prisoners in, you know, in their hotel rooms. Oh, I think it must have been absolute hell, absolute hell. And thank God they continued working and they continued to sort of mm. develop musically and all of that. So, but I just, I do think it's uh, unusual. I expect that you like them. You know, that there's, you go through patches, don't you, where it's okay, and patches where you you have got your feet on the ground, and patches where that strange thing of fame which is i think i think can be so fantastically unhealthy no i I mean i agree i mean especially paul is the person from the beatles that i know most i mean i i i I knew george who was lovely i know ringo but not as well as paul but paul is so amazingly normal and sweet and kind and it's extraordinary yes it is absolutely extraordinary I think you need to really have such a strong sense of yourself and, you know, not not to identify with all of that and 
really get get pulled out of out of actually you know really being a kind of normal human being anymore well i i i mean not that i was in their league of fame but i was thrown into that kind of spotlight very young and listen i was as shocked <laughs> as anyone else when it happened because you know you, you know what teenagers are like you always hate what you look like i was you know i was too thin <laughs> and i had no boobs and i wanted to be taller and you know anyway yeah. Um, but I think because my family was so important at that time, it was mum, mum and dad, and my yeah. sisters, and we're my sisters. We're still very close. And then when I, you know, started to have a family of my own, that was my my grounding. I think really. Yes, absolutely. That yeah. was my work, and that's what I did. And you don't believe all the rubbish they write in the papers half the time, and and that my home life was my life. Yes. But you're like that. You're the most normal person, you know. Mm. You're you're a person. It's not like you're incredibly you are incredibly famous, quite rightly. Um but you you know, when when we met, you know, we yeah. were just two people who got on, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Totally. And and I mean I think that you're right that living close to your family you know, my my dad died long before I was famous, so I was very close to my mum. And um, you can't you can't change if someone's there witnessing you. You can't suddenly turn into some monstrous egotist, can you? Because they'll just turn around and say, "What? Yeah, <laughs> what? Well, well, yeah." But also, <laughs> I, I living on the same street was a help because up the road there's a garage run by um, a Greek Cypriot man called Mr. Carmeli who whenever I did anything that came into the newspapers that he disapproved of, would follow me down the street going, just have children, what do you do? You don't save the world. You cannot save the world, Emma. You're a very stupid girl. You know, really, that's not a very good Greek Cypriot accent. But, you know, if you're surrounded by people going, will you just shut up? You, you, so you go, funny. well, I'm not going to shut up, but I certainly don't think that I'm any more important than anybody else. That's so funny. <laughs> have you coped all right through all this um lockdown and not seeing but well you've had your family with you you've had greg and your mum and gaia and tindy i have i've had the immediate family yeah mum guy and greg what about tindy and his kids have you seen them well tins is he's married but he, he doesn't have kids but he yeah they came to scotland when we were allowed, you know, oh, good. he came absolutely for a couple of weeks. And um, so, yeah, absolutely. And he, he, they're doing very well, actually. And it was brilliant because I didn't have to worry about mum, you know, because there wasn't really anybody coming into that that little bubble. So we just lived yeah. very quietly. And are you a cook? I am a cook, but my daughter Gaia is a better Ooh. cook and oh, she cooked oh. for us. So it was a bit like actually having a cook. And Greg's a good cook, I remember. Greg's a great cook. Yeah, yeah. So I don't do quite as much as I did because you love cooking. I love it. I found that quite therapeutic. And I took up knitting. I've taken up knitting again and sewing. Yes. Have you Have you been writing? I mean, could you have taken... No, funnily enough, I, I just wanted to... This year I wanted to take a year off. Like I said, I wanted a sabbatical. Yeah. So... I found it quite interesting that I I didn't even read much. I, I sort of... Oh, interesting. Sort of stopped and I spent a lot, a lot of time outside and I made a lot of bonfires and did sort of outside things, but I didn't do anything... What, I didn't do things that, that, that I would describe as mind work, thinking things. Okay. Probably just, good. Oh, very good, I think. I mean, something good must come out i mean obviously terrible things have happened and people have lost yeah. loved ones but one has to hope that you know some when we come out of this please god that something i mean the fact that the planet's in slightly better condition because of less mm. airplanes and less cars and how long that will last and no cruise ships so you know yeah. i was read i saw a program where Lots of parts of the ocean, you know, they're getting all the fish back and because yeah. there's no big um, liners going in. So, you know, maybe we all have to relook at 
what we do and what we use and I don't know. We knew we had to do that for, for starters. We knew that. But what I hope is that we'll come round now finally to understanding what essential work is. You know, and care is essential work. And stacking shelves in supermarkets is essential work. Yeah, yeah. You know, and doctors and nurses and all folk who are, you know, I mean, a junior doctor gets paid less than the manager at McDonald's. Now, we've got the priorities about what we pay people, I think, um, could be changed. Um, and I, I think it, if we just developed a society that, that was much, much more caring, much more understanding of what's really, really essential. I mean, if the, if the army of carers who are unpaid in this country stopped work, we would have a crisis on our hands that would put COVID into a very pale second place. So, you know, appreciating what people do for their families, how they struggle and how they, they're not supported, actually, because we haven't created a society. Like I always think, you know, I always think if I was designing a city again, I'd say, all right, I'd say to all the architects, make me a city which is safe and pleasant and comfortable for very old people and babies. And then everything else will follow. Everyone else will be fine. Just make a city that's nice for those two groups. Then... Everyone in between and in the middle, people who, for instance, aren't able-bodied or people who've got sort of problems with their mental health, everyone will be taken care of because that will be the bottom line. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, all, everyone who's sort of up and about and absolutely, you know, zinging with whatever they will be able to do it, but they won't, it won't be at the expense of the vulnerable. No, that's very, very true. Well, let's hope, you know, as I said, that, when we do come out of this, which hopefully we, we will. will sooner rather than later. Hopefully, um, yeah. That some yeah. of it will, you know, change somewhere. Yeah. You know, because obviously I, I I think, and I'm sure you do, you know, the doctors and nurses have been the real heroes of this. They were, oh, they've yeah. been so brave and um, Imagine unbelievable. Imagine having to go into, back into all that PPE Unbelievable, again. I know. I mean, they were already dealing with lots of trauma from the first time. I know. Because so many of them hadn't seen levels of death of that kind in their hospital. So, mm. yeah, I mean, they're just just remarkable. And then the government said no to a 2% pay rise for nurses. Unbelievable. And I thought, I thought well, Unbelievable. I, you can't have it both ways, you people. You no, can't you say, can't. aren't they marvellous, and then tell everyone to get on their doorsteps and clap while you say no to a, to to a, a rise. after all, a, a, a very modest pay rise. I, I, I couldn't mm. understand that. I just didn't, I just didn't understand what that, where that was coming from. Anyway, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you for talking to me. Oh, it's lovely. And I hope we can get to see you soon and hug and have dinner and do all that. Definitely. Well, as soon as we're allowed, we'll, we'll get you over or we'll come to you. I want to see your flat again. I love your flat. Uh, yeah, I love our flat, actually. It's, it's, we've been here for 35, 35 years. <laughs> Yeah, you've had time to sort of perfect it, haven't you? And it's still the <laughs> it's still the same wallpaper. You'll be happy to know. I love that wallpaper. It was like this wallpaper oh. was here when we moved in, and we love we've painted the kind of wooden bits, but we like we always say, "Oh, we love this yes. wallpaper." So God knows how old that is, because we've been here for thirty five years. So presumably they'd had it up for ten. Oh no, it must <laughs> be half a century old. I bet you. Well, that's a saving, isn't yeah, it? It is. <laughs> We're very, we're very good at that. We don't, we don't waste. <laughs> no. Well, that's another thing that's good that's come out of the lockdown, oh, hasn't absolutely. it? Us, us remembering that we, there's no need for absolutely. waste. Absolutely. I know. I mean, mm. and also what we've been wearing, clothes-wise. I mean, I've got a oh, cupboard yeah. full of clothes that I haven't put on for a year. <laughs> I, I've been in tracksuits and jumpers and t-shirts. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to love you and leave you. Give my love to your loved ones, especially to your mama. All right, darling. And I'll I'll talk to you soon. Lots and lots of love. Bye. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed that. I I love Emma so much. She's I could have gone on chatting for hours and hours and she's such an incredible force of nature actually. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll see you next time. Bye. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Tea with Twiggy, please take a moment to give us a lovely five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people to find the show. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast so you auto-magically get the next episodes for free. And do tell all your friends and family about it too. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. You just heard a stripped media production. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.